Welcome to everyone at Latham, at Half Moon, Saratoga, and online. We are so glad that you have decided to join us today for a conversation about life's big questions. My name is Allie. I am on staff at Grace, and it's my honor to host our Big Questions panel. Now, for 10 weeks, we have been studying the theology behind life's biggest questions. Is God real? Is the Bible reliable? Is there life after death? And much more. And throughout the course of this series, we've asked Grace Fellowship to submit questions. What's on your mind? What big questions about life are you wrestling with? What are the spiritual and philosophical topics that you face each day in your life? And thank you to everyone who submitted questions. Uh, we, every single one of them is so important to us, and we're going to do our best to fit as much as we can into our two-part panel. You know, and as these questions rolled in, our pastors looked at them and thought, you know what? Rather than monologue, let's dialogue. Let's sit down and have a candid conversation about these questions. And that is exactly what we are going to do today. So before we begin, some brief introductions. To the left of our panel here, my left, we have the dynamic trio of campus pastors. At the far end, we have Pastor Isaac Denton the pastor of our Saratoga campus. Next to him, we have Pastor Tim Gardner, the pastor of our Half Moon campus. Next to him, Pastor Matt Saxon, pastor of our Latham campus. And finally, the senior pastor of Grace Fellowship, Rex Keener. So pastors, thank you for being here today. Are you ready to jump into some big questions? Yeah, let's yeah. do this. Let's do this. Let's do it. Okay, yeah. I'm going to start us off with a biggie, and it's a question apropos to this week in particular following a presidential election. Um, Rex, I'll direct this one to you first to for first remarks, and then we can start Super. the conversation. In a world so badly divided, how can the church possibly be united? What a great question. And, you know, I appreciate all the folks at Grace who submitted these wonderful questions that you actually brought to us. And boy, there's probably no question more timely and relevant right now than that one. Well, Jesus prayed for unity, did he not? I mean, read the high priestly prayer he gave in John 17. And Jesus envisioned, he prayed that his followers would be one. But how can we be one in a world like this? How can Democrats and Republicans ever get along for God's sake? How can people with different visions of what our country ought to be, what society ought to look like, what our culture ought to result in, how can we ever get along? Well, I believe that God has given us a way through this morass, and I believe that it is found at the foot of the cross. Historically at Grace, we have had a wide diversity of beliefs on political issues, social issues, cultural issues, but we have agreed on the main things, and that's, I think, the key. We keep the main thing the main thing. Surely we can agree that God loves people and doesn't want anyone to perish. Surely we can agree on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Surely we can agree that God Almighty is the creator of heaven and earth. 
Surely we can agree on huge, important issues like the fact that our mission is to make more and better disciples and on and on. These are things we can rally around. But we can agree to disagree on other things and be okay with that. Let me put it to you like this. We could get ourselves all in a big room and someone could lock the door on us and keep us in there for a hundred years. And I assure you, we would never agree on all the political, cultural, social issues of our day. The good news is we don't have to. But here's something that I would want to throw in here as a challenge to all of us in an hour like this. I believe there's some idolatry going on in the body of Christ these days, and I believe it's been at epic proportions during the election, during all the campaigning, based on what I hear and see. I believe there's a political illusion at work. Jacques Ellul was the first one, as far as I know, to ever use that phrase. Chuck Colson used it and wrote an article on it. You might want to Google that and look it up. The political illusion. What is that? I believe sometimes people are expecting their government to give them a rich and full life. I think they're expecting things from their government that really only God can provide. Trust me, folks. Our government cannot solve all of the most important issues of the day. I don't care who's in office. I hope we all understand that as believers. Our hope is not in our government, no matter what it looks like. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. He's the one we rally around. He's the one we're living for. And the political illusion becomes this idolatry when we're actually trusting in our government to do things for us it was never intended to do. And so that's what I would want all of us to consider in this day and hour. And not just on political issues, but on any other issue that is not central to who we are and what we're about. We can be united on the main things, but on those secondary and third level issues, I think it's okay to agree to disagree. Wow, I want to throw this to you, Isaac, Tim, and Matt. You all lead your own campuses, and you see firsthand some of the fractures, not just in our culture, but uh, perhaps between people in the church around religious convictions, political ideologies. What do you think of this idea? Can the church be united in a time like this? Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in as the newest person in coming to Grace. And I'll say, as, as we look to come to Grace, one of the things I loved is the idea of three-circle thinking as we talk about it here at Grace. And it's what Rex was just talking about a minute ago. That inner circle is what's core, what we believe in. But then beyond that, is second is pre preferences and convictions being that second and third. And so we absolutely can be and need to be unified on what is central. So I think now, I know that's how we talk about it here, and I think it's absolutely possible for the church to be unified on what is central and have good conversations on those things that are convictions and preferences outside of that. Yeah, yeah and I would just add to that, those secondary and those tertiary issues that are matters of conviction or preference, if you read Romans chapter 14, there's two really practical instructions there. The first 
is let each man be convinced in his own mind. This is not about not having opinions or deeply held convictions. You are through the leadership of the Holy Spirit and freedom in certain areas where we have that freedom, you come to your own conclusion. But the other side of that coin is that we also, that conviction that we have, largely keep it between us and God. And I think one of the keys for having peace and unity is to keep those divisive secondary issues relatively quiet or very selective when we talk about them. And instead, let's let the, the main things be the plain things and the things we talk about with one another. Yeah, I think Jesus was onto something when he said, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. I feel like when I pray for people I, I know I disagree with, yeah. if I lift them up before God and I pray for them, my attitude toward them cannot be one of hatred or animosity. It's, man, I, mm-hmm. I'm praying for you, I love you, and I'm actually growing in my mind, I'm growing closer to you. I think Jesus was, uh, it was pretty brilliant when he said that. And I, I really right personally on. recently have been yeah. taking that to uh, let's, let's pray for people who we disagree with, whether it's politics or, or any, any number of topics. Yeah, Excellent. I love that. I love that. Political engagement is so important, but we can't let it divide us within the church. Keep the main thing the main thing. That's great. All right, so from a question that is very current to a question as old as time itself. Um, Matt, I'll pass this one to you. Someone submitted a question around God's involvement in the creation of our world. Um, didn't evolution put God out of a job? You know, I think there is this idea out there in the culture and also in the church that science and faith are in this great battle with one another. But the reality of it is science, when it's rightly interpreted, it will never contradict the Bible when the Bible is also rightly interpreted. And I think that is so key because the church has gotten itself into a lot of trouble in the past when they have taken an erroneous interpretation of the Bible and used it to dismiss a correct interpretation from nature or science. If you look at Galileo, you will see that when he discovered that the sun was at the center of the solar system, the church uh, really persecuted Galileo and deemed him a heretic because they saw that claim as contradicting the Bible. Uh, What should have happened is those theologians who believe that Galileo's claims were contradicting the Bible, they should have gone to the Bible with much more humility because the kinds of verses that they were appealing to were verses where it talks about the sun rising. And what's going on there in the Bible is when the sun is being spoken as rising, that's not a scientific declaration. Rather, that's talking about something that happens in nature from the perspective of man. And we even do this to this day in 2020. Your meteorologist will tell you when the sun is going to rise. So the Bible uses that same kind of language. It's not there making a scientific declaration. It's talking about something in nature from man's point of view. Uh, When I think we look at the idea of evolution, we need to make a distinction between macroevolution and microevolution. And microevolution is the idea that there are these small gradual changes, often within species, things like finches beaks getting a few millimeters longer or something like that. And I think that's pretty well substantiated at this point. Those sorts of adaptations that are small do certainly happen. That's why all of us here on the platform 
though we have a common ancestor, look so different. I don't know of any creationist who believes that Noah took onto the ark two of every possible breed of dog or cat, but rather he took a pair of dogs and a pair of cats, and over time as they breed, you have all of these differences that show up over the course of time. And I know many people find it laughable to even talk about Noah and the ark as if that's historical. However, virtually every people group in antiquity have a flood myth. In other words, people all across the world have in their stories that were passed down a story of a flood, oftentimes a worldwide flood, and oftentimes one caused by a deity, and the best explanation for that is that actually happened. But at any rate, when microevolution seems to be very clearly established, in contrast to that, macroevolution seems to be anything but clearly established. Macroevolution, the idea you have a common ancestor from which all these different species are here, that is something where I think the scientists need to have much more humility. Charles Darwin, in his book on the origin of species, has an entire chapter. And in that chapter, he talks about the objections and the holes and the problems with the theory of evolution. And he anticipated in the coming decades after he wrote that, science would vindicate his theory. However, as we've discovered more about DNA coding and the cell and all these other areas, we have seen paleontologists, biologists, uh, and all different kinds of scientists not see that those gaps were closed, but in fact, there are more and more holes being poked into the theory of evolution. You know, I think it's kind of funny that at the end of the day, whether you believe in the theory of evolution or believe God created the heavens and the earth, we actually have a lot in common, surprisingly. On the one hand, the belief in evolution and the belief in creation are both faith positions. By that I mean nobody here, no one alive on planet Earth saw God create the heavens and the earth, and neither did anyone alive on planet Earth right now see a singular ancestor evolve into birds, into whales, and mole rats over the course of time. We simply have evidence, and in light of that evidence, come to our best belief and thoughts on making sense out of that evidence. Secondly, another funny area where there's a lot in common is ultimately, at the end of the day, creationists and evolutionists have to admit that there has to be somewhere an uncaused cause. And those that are in favor of neo-Darwinism, they believe that that uncaused cause is time and chance. Now, to me, how anyone could hold to that is just kind of hard to fathom because you look at how intricate life is and just how finely tuned everything is. I think it is much more reasonable to believe and an intelligent being designing the creation the way it is. And since that's the case, I don't think God's gonna be filing for unemployment insurance anytime <laughs> soon. Amen, Ooh. smoke it. I want yeah. Matt to be my uh, teacher, my science teacher. <laughs> <laughs> Believe me, you don't, you don't. <laughs> uh, something I love uh, that you said, Matt, is when the Bible is interpreted correctly, science and the Bible should not contradict. That's correct. I love that because if we do believe as Christians that God is the creator, it shouldn't. The Bible and creation are both his. All truth is God's truth. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. I One love quick that. word I want to add to what Matt said. 
uh, as he indicated, Darwin in The Origin of Species did speak to the um, sort of downside of his theory. In other words, what is lacking right now? One of the things he pointed to was the fossil record, and he anticipated that as more archaeology happened, uh, these digs would show thousands of intermediary forms. If macroevolution is true, then the fossil record would need to show thousands of intermediary forms of life. The fact of the matter is, as you indicated, it simply has not backed that theory up. So that's important to point out. Yeah, and if we have humility as the future comes and comes and more scientific data comes in, we can be humble and open to whatever findings do come. Amen. Here's Love a good that. phrase to remember. Good theology and good science are good friends. And when you like lean that. into that, yeah. it relieves a lot of tension that somebody, it may be in a science class or studying a science field, it relieves some tension for them for sure. Yeah, science and the Bible are not enemies. That's great. Amen. Okay, I'm gonna bring us down a different road. We received a lot of questions around the topic of salvation certainty. Um, so I'm wondering if we can start a conversation, a few different avenues under salvation certainty, but Isaac, I'll pass this to you first. How do you know, like truly, truly know that you are saved and have eternal life in heaven? Yeah, I love that question. And I wanna give a brief description. Maybe you're new to church, watching online, whatever it might be, and what it means when we say save. This is a big term that we use and it might just get thrown around. And it means recognizing this reality that God is holy and perfect and that man sinned and really separated us, brought a separation between God and man. And the only way that could be brought back together was with the perfect sacrifice. And that perfect sacrifice was Jesus. So Jesus went to the cross, died for our sins, took our place, and then defeated death by rising from the grave. And so when we say saved, it's believing that Jesus died for me, for my sins in my place and rose from the dead. And then as the Bible talks about then, we have all sinned. We might think that we're good people, but we've all sinned and, and find ourselves in that separation. But then as we look at what the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans, it says that believing, you believe that you are a sinner in need of a Savior and that the gift that we receive is salvation in Jesus Christ. But then what, what I love to go to from there in terms of the second part of the question is huge of the assurance. How can I know that I have eternal life? And Pastor Rex went there a little bit last week as we talked about believing in life after death. And there's a passage in John 10 where, where John talks about how, um, or Jesus is really saying, those who believe are in the Father's hand and cannot be snatched out. You have a place with the Father for those who have believed that Jesus Christ died for your sins. So that's the, the biggest place that I would turn to is that realization in, in John where it says that, that you are not gonna lose that salvation, that place with Jesus in and probably another verse that may be the most well-known verse, whether you've been around church or not, is um, just out there is John 3, 16. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever should believe would not perish but have eternal life. So we can have that assurance for those who say and declare, I believe that Jesus died in my place for my sins, have a relationship with God, and that that will last forever. That's great. Uh, yeah. 
I'll complicate the question a little bit. We received so many questions around this topic, and I want to make sure that we do them justice. Um, one person who submitted a question went through a tragic loss of a loved one through suicide. And they wrote us and they asked, um, can someone who committed suicide still be saved? I'm wondering if our panel can address um, cases of suicide and salvation certainty. Uh, I'll jump in on that suicide question. You know, suicide is just a horrendous reality in our culture, in our nation. In fact, if the stats I read are accurate, more people die from suicide in the U.S. than die from homicide. And the number one age group among which suicides are growing is the elderly. Oh, wow. uh, historically, the institutional church has taught that those who commit suicide, because it is a mortal sin, one they can never be forgiven of, that they would go to hell. They would not be saved. I would, I would say that we, we should not be so quick to jump to that conclusion. Here's what I mean. I have known some wonderful Christ followers in my life, people who showed all the evidence of being saved and following Christ. They had wonderful fruit in their life. But because of some level of mental illness, because of... Uh, extreme chemical imbalances, or even because of situational depression. They were plunged into despair and in a moment of weakness took their own life. I have no reason to believe personally that someone who is truly saved and fell into despair in a situation or because of chemical imbalance or mental illness, takes their own life. As horrible as that decision is, I have no reason to believe that that person is not still saved. Now, let me be clear. We should never, ever condone suicide. It is a horrendous choice that is made. But again, while I can't personally identify with that level of despair, I know that it is a reality in the lives of, of a lot of people today. And let me just add this quick word. I think that the real victims of suicide are those loved ones left behind, left with a tsunami of pain and questions that they probably don't have answers to. They're the ones who really need our kindness and our prayers. Absolutely. Um, another question that we received on this topic was from a congregant who had a religious leader suggest to them that if you don't have a conversion moment or very time-defined spiritual experience of conversion, that you can't be saved. Mm. Mm. Um, this person says, I believe in Jesus. I, I love him. As far as I know, I've got a pretty strong faith. Um, but I, I don't have a story. I, I just feel like I've known Jesus my whole life. Can someone without a redemption moment in time be sure of their salvation? Well, I feel like I'm hogging the platform here, but <laughs> let, me, let me go ahead and speak to that quickly. I, I do believe that without a redemption story, it, it's questionable if one is redeemed. But please don't conclude from that, that that means that in your redemption story, that you know the exact moment 
when you were regenerated or when you passed from darkness to light or were translated into the kingdom of God or converted or whatever you choose to call that, okay? Let, let me use a couple of illustrations. Billy and Ruth Graham. Billy Graham, in talking about his salvation, always referred to Mordecai Ham's revival meeting where he walked the sawdust trail, he went forward and prayed a prayer. That's what you were expected to do in that revivalist environment. You marked your conversion by walking forward and responding to an altar call. But he often referred to his wife, Ruth, who could not mark a moment like that, and he always insisted she was a much, much better Christian than he was. Let me talk about myself and my wife, Debbie. Uh, I can mark the moment when I believe I really crossed over from darkness to light. It was June the 16th, 1974, a Father's Day, Gum Springs Baptist Church, 11.30 in the evening. On the second stanza of one, number 192 in the Baptist hymnal, the nail-scarred hand. Wow. The exact <laughs> words of stanza two were, are you walking alone through the shadows dim? Place your hand in the nail-scarred hand. Christ will comfort your heart. Put your trust in him. Place your hand in the nail-scarred hand. And I did. I walked forward. That was my moment. But my wife, Debbie, who trusts me, is a far better Christian than me, grew up in a tradition much like Ruth Graham where they didn't have altar calls like that. You weren't encouraged to mark a moment. There were many moments. There were lots of things that were important in the process of how God drew you to himself. So bottom line is this, those of us who grew up in revivalist traditions where it was more focused on a crisis moment of salvation, we were taught to mark that moment. That's it, that's what you want. And that's how the evangelists kind of tallied up their success. How many people had a moment like that that we can record? But there are millions of Christians across this world who did not grow up in that kind of tradition and while they are genuinely saved and have a redemption story, they cannot mark a specific moment. We just need to be aware that how God draws us to himself for salvation is very organic, and it's not going to look the same all the time. That's great and really helpful. Thank you. So I think Christians often separate their earthly life into justification and sanctification. Justification being that conversion and sanctification being the lifelong process of becoming more Christ-like. Um, so moving on from justification questions and salvation certainty, I'm wondering if we can spend the remainder of our time on some sanctification questions. And Tim, I'll address this one to you. Someone writes, I often find it difficult to move forward and make progress in my walk with God. I lose focus or have trouble understanding scripture. I struggle with my prayer time and reading. I'm stuck. How do I move forward? Yeah, that's such a great question. And to this question, there's a phrase that comes to mind, and it's not a phrase that you're gonna find in scripture, but I think the idea of it is all throughout scripture, and that's the phrase spiritual disciplines. Uh, we see it in 1 Corinthians chapter nine. Paul talks of this idea of training like an athlete when it comes to our spiritual lives. And again, in 1 Timothy Chapter four, verses seven and eight, and I'll read it real quick for us. Train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things. And then there's an example of Christ. 
time and time again of withdrawing from the crowds to spend time in solitude, in silence, in prayer with his heavenly Father. And I like to describe this as spiritual disciplines. By engaging in practices, you're not going to earn yourself into heaven. You're not going to get points with God to earn salvation, but it's, it's an opportunity for us to put ourselves before God in order to be changed by him and to grow closer to him. It, it helps us to uh, be aware of God's action in our lives and how he wants us to grow. Things like singing, engaging in fellowship, reading the Bible, prayer, solitude, giving, serving. These are all described as spiritual disciplines. And and like the word discipline kind of sounds, it, it, it might not be fun. Like if you want to get in shape physically, you need to do the hard work of going to the gym and going on a run. That's not always fun. If you want to be really good at a musical instrument, you actually have to play scales, up and down the scales. It's not always fun. And like that, it's not always something that we're going to enjoy doing, but as we do it over and over again in a disciplined way, I think it's going to help us grow closer to God, and I actually think we're going to crave it over time and enjoy it. Um, and there's going to be dry spells. Uh, there's going to be times when you just, you're in that moment of, I'm stuck. And I'd like to think of it, I'm a runner, I like to run. I can change the way that I run. I could run on a treadmill, I can run on the road, I can run on a trail. Change how you're engaging in these spiritual disciplines. Maybe find an a, a online Bible reading plan. Read a Bible with your friends or find a book that helps you understand what you're reading in Scripture a little bit better. Pray in a different way uh, and keep doing it. Be disciplined in it because I think the more that we do that, the more that we're going to fall in love with God and grow and then crave it. Love that. That's great. Um. We had someone else along that same vein, right, that this person is around unbelievers more than believers and feels as if they're feeling the effects of that. Um, will they, she asks, will I ever be strong enough to stand up and be the woman God wants me to be with all of the negative influences around me, including my family members? I'm wondering wow. if we can wrap up with that. Well, it, just in hearing that uh, question, having read it actually earlier when it was first submitted, I, I kind of sensed the frustration in this dear woman's life. Yeah. She, uh, I was reminded of Romans 7 where Paul says, the things I want to do, I, I don't do. The things I, I hate, I end up doing. And I, I sense that she's kind of there, very, very frustrated by her lack of, of progress. I like what Pastor Tim just said about spiritual disciplines. And I really believe that that is the key. Uh, and so I think bottom line is, whether it's this dear woman, any of us, we've got to latch a hold, embrace, and really begin to practice some spiritual disciplines. But I think that one of her dilemmas is the environment she's in. You know, we're greatly affected by the people we're around. By the way, that's why I hang out with these guys a lot, <laughs> because they help me to grow. They spur me on. These guys are sharp. Amen. All right? Amen? <laughs> Amen? They're sharp. It's good to be around folks who are going to encourage and help foster growth in you. But what if you're in a family like this dear person where they're actually pulling her away from Christ? They're actually not stoking the fires of devotion, but actually throwing water on them, as it were. That's a hard place to be. 
Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 33, do not be misled, bad company corrupts good character. Solomon says in Proverbs 13, 20, he who walks with the wise grows wise, but a companion of fools suffers harm. The folks we hang out with, the company we keep is far more impactful either for good or for bad than we realize. I hope we all understand that. It's important, the environments we seek out. It really, really is. But I would want to say, almost as a challenge to this dear woman or anyone, this is what I believe. You can disagree if you'd like. I don't believe anyone can keep you from growing spiritually. I just don't believe it. Yeah, it can be harder in some environments than others, but if you do what Pastor Tim said a moment ago, if you choose to practice some healthy spiritual disciplines, I believe that God will honor that. And even in the worst of environments, I believe that you can see progress in your life. It won't be easy, as Pastor Tim said, but I believe that God will bring the growth if we cooperate with his grace. Good. Thank you so much for that. And I hate to do this. Our time is already up. Oh. Time flew way too fast. <laughs> <laughs> um, pastors, thank you for your time. And Grace Fellowship, thank you for submitting your questions. We are going to be back next week with part two of our pastor panel. We look forward to worshiping with you at our Latham, Half Moon, and Saratoga campuses and online. And until then, let's cling to Jesus, who is the ultimate answer to life's biggest questions. And let's wrap up today in prayer. Uh, Jesus, thank you for this opportunity to learn. Thank you for a community where we can ask big questions, where we can intellectually and relationally and spiritually get to know you better. God, we love you deeply. Amen.